This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. What a pleasure it was to be joined by Cody Royal for this Coach Developer podcast. Cody, who is a podcaster himself, author and coach developer, has worked in Aussie Rules football for many years and supports head coaches working across a range of different sports. Cody and I split the conversation in two. We talked about a number of the hard truths for head coaches that Cody shares in his book, The Tough Stuff, and then talked about Cody's approach to coach development, how he develops trust, safety, and rapport. This is a great lesson for coaches, for coach developers, and for anyone who creates a learning environment for a coach. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm delighted today to be joined by... Uh, Cody Royal. Uh, Cody, from your um, flash-looking apartment in downtown Toronto, uh, welcome to the conversation today. It's not flash at all, Tom, I can uh, assure you of that, mate. But uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me on, and uh, it's great to chat to you, especially, uh, I know we we talked previously about having a a bit of a link where you live, actually, to, to my family as well, so that's really cool. Small world, strange connections popping up all over the place. Maybe, maybe we'll get the opportunity to meet in person at some point. Um, so for, for our conversation today, uh, we're talking about um, supporting head coaches. And something I was really interested in when, when connecting with Cody was, was um, Cody's new book, uh, The Tough Stuff, uh, which kind of explores like, the, the, the real kind of reality of what it is to be a head coach. So we've got two parts ready to our conversation today. The first half is is talking about the qualities of a high-performing head coach and understanding from, from Cody's perspective what that is. And the second part is more about the support. So how does Cody start to support people in those roles and, and, and explore some of his expertise and his experience in that area? So for everyone listening, I take this as an opportunity to maybe break the podcast up, listen to it in chunks, think about how this relates back into your world, either as a coach, but also perhaps as someone who's creating a learning environment for a coach and how you can create that support for them to fulfill their potential along the way. But to stop me talking all the time, uh, Cody, um, two questions just to kick us off and, and to get us into the, into the right place for the conversation today. Um, first of all, I'm just really curious, what, why are you so interested in, in supporting head coaches? Why is this a route that you decided to take? I would be lying if I said that this was planned or that there was a particular interest in pursuing this from some other field, you know, psychology or, you know, coming from somewhere else in sport. It was really off the back of writing that book, which it was a COVID baby. And what I, uh, what I realized right back at the start of COVID through having conversations with a lot of my friends who were also head coaches in you know, professional leagues all around the world was that everyone was struggling. Everyone was kind of having this mini meltdown almost as, you know, as, as the thoughts of, you know, we've kind of forgotten already right at the start of COVID, it was very much like this league might not survive. These clubs might go insolvent. Uh, my job, might go away, my career might go away. And so it was quite dire very early on. And that threw a lot of head coaches through the ringer and and obviously with some extra time to think about all of those different things, people realised that 
thing. One, they weren't going so well. And then two, they've kind of been winging it for most of their careers and just been in the, in the washing machine. And, you know, with some time and separation from what they were doing, I think that kind of came to the fore. And so I, I started having those conversations and ultimately wrote a book about it. And that's put me on this path to helping head coaches. Cause I think for such a central piece to what we do, particularly in elite sport, but obviously all sport, but I, I more focus on the, uh, you know, the elite side for such a central piece, we do so little to set these people up for success that it's at, like, it, it, it blows my mind every time I start to think about it, that the amount of money spent on head coaches, the amount of money spent on head coaches to not coach your team because you fired them. And if you bundle all that, you start to think about those things and just say, but what if you just put that money towards actually setting this person up for success? I think we'd be in a much better place. So that was kind of my journey, but it wasn't planned. It came off the back of a book and, and just started to become, coaches started to reach out to me and say, can you work with me? Nice, nice. And, and look, I'm sure we'll get into lots of that and kind of the way that you've approached that support a bit later on in, in our conversation. Um, and look, just, just to get a feel for, for your ex expertise and, and your experience and the journey you've, you've been on over your, your journey as a, as a coach, um, here's the question to frame it. So we're going to go on a three-day road trip, all expenses paid, um, based on, on what have been memorable moments for you and your journey. Where are we going to go and who are we going to see? Well, so is it you and me, Tom? Is this, you, is, who's you, coming you, on the road trip? It's you and me. We can invite anybody you want to if you, if you want to have some passengers. <laughs> okay. We are, I'm happy to burn a day in transit of the three days to get you and me to Melbourne. This might be a predictable answer for a Melbourne boy, but I would happily burn a day in transit to see and hear a game of AFL at the MCG. That I, I've been all over the world and seen games of just about everything in everywhere. And there is nothing quite like the, the sound of the MCG when there's an AFL game going on there with, you know, 80,000 people, 90,000 people, a hundred thousand people in the stands. So, and then from there we can go and visit whoever we want. It's the, the center of the sporting universe as far, as far as I'm concerned. So if you want to talk to people about formula one, AFL, cricket, tennis, Netball doesn't matter. They're all in Melbourne. What what is, what is it about that kind of electricity of atmosphere? Is is that something that that inspired you to to kind of go down this road and get in, get into this world? Yeah, I actually grew up walking distance from. It's called Waverley Park. It's where Hawthorne used to play, uh, and so you know we were walking distance from an AFL stadium, and so yeah, just that that. Uh, that sound and that access obviously influenced my sporting life, but there's something about the, the Melbourne cricket grounds, um, the way it's built, the way that the sound kind of comes, you know, even to the back of the stands. And it, it really is. It's, it's that electricity and, and particularly of, you know, two sets of fans. The thing is most teams are obviously based in Melbourne. And so 
when Melbourne teams play other Melbourne teams, there's no real home game necessarily. You know, you, you, if you're looking at 80,000 people, there might be 40,000 and 40,000. And so that creates this really unique sound in the air. Uh, it's not all cheering. It's, you know, a little bit of both. And I, I just love it. I, I think it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you know what I can... I'm on the same page as you, just in terms of from, from a football perspective and stepping into big stadiums with just just that, that atmosphere that, that makes all the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. I, I was fortunate enough to be at the, um, the the football game on Sunday, so the European Cup final between uh, England and Italy, and um, I, I, I kind of was sat right right at the front, so you got the intensity of the sound from the crowd. Um, I've just thought of a really nice segue into the first part of our conversation. Actually, I'm quite I'm quite happy to be deliberate about this. Uh, that I, I can imagine just just being touching distance away from some of the players. That, that the pressure that that builds, and, and there must be a balance in all that between pressure and and energy that it must give people. How does that How does that feel for coaches in that kind of environment? And what have you experienced around kind of coaches in high performance who are trying to to almost balance? the energy of the crowd, the, the sense of occasion and and doing their job really well. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot have a performance mindset that they can't hear or I won't say feel, but they can't hear the crowd um, for the most part, even standing on the sidelines. But, you know, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because the the attention has kind of gone towards more let's call them almost crowd-involved coaches, like your, your Jurgen Klopp, you know, kind of turning around to the crowd and putting his hands up, say, come on, get behind us. And, and that's kind of become a thing again more recently where we went through this period of, of just hyper-focused coaches. They're very cold and, um, you know, stone-faced and just focused on the game. And now it's kind of gone back a little bit towards the, you know, we're all in this together the players can get the, the uh, sorry, the fans can get the players through this this rough patch in the game, or can get them some extra petrol tickets towards the end of the game to just get over this hump. And and that the coach facilitating that has kind of become this little uh, you know side story in sport again, which is is magnificent. So, but yeah, like a, a lot that I that I talk to or work with, they are almost like players when you ask them about games. They can remember what they did, but what was going on in the crowd or um, that doesn't really come into their, their conscience. It's kind of there in the subconscious. Yeah, I can see that. It must be a a, a benefit to be able to just, just not hear that and make it white noise and, and, and play your game, I suppose. You can't hear anything unless your mum calls out. That's the golden rule, I think. Even amongst the hundred thousand people in the stadium, if your mum is is saying something, you can hear that. <laughs> I have to choose carefully who, who coaches and players give their their, their family tickets to, and that can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, look, um, as I said, Cody, there's a few things that'd be brilliant just to touch on and explore in the conversation, and I think there's loads of different avenues we could go down. Um, first of all, I, I guess I'm thinking about high performance as a head coach. And this, this I, I guess, is context-specific. It might feel different in different sports. It might feel different depending on the pressure that the coach is under or the stage they're at this season. 
but from the work that you've done and the the journey you've been on, um, is there anything you'll take away to say, well, are there some qualities of head coaches that transcend transcend lots of different sports and lots of different environments that you'd say actually these are things that that make a difference or give give that competitive edge? Tom, I would actually flip it around the other way and say the the consistent things that you can observe isn't so much, you know, this particular type of performance methodology for coaching. It's more so that they understand the context of how they operate in at their best in the right context and the acceptance of a lot of the parts of the job. And so, you know, there is so much weight applied to head coaches. I, I write quite extensively in the book about what I call the weight and it's really the emotional weight and the, the, the multitude of factors at the elite level that go into just getting onto the field before you even step foot on the grass or on the court, the strain on your emotional bandwidth is astronomical. And what catches a lot of coaches unprepared is that they come from an assistant coaching role where none of that applies. You don't have to have a whole heap of emotional uh, strain placed upon you as an assistant. And many, many coaches have talked about this. Frank Lampard's talked about this recently. Steven Gerrard's talked about this recently, how even, even having spent an entire life, you know, in Frank Lampard's example, like watching his dad. So he, he's come up observing his father, then come through, played himself, observed all of his coaches, all of his dad's coaches, and then got into coaching and said, I wasn't ready for that. And so, you know, you start to think, how is that possible? And it really is this, there are so many bits of minutiae along the way, the, the weight that comes with dealing with players, becoming the boss, you know, giving a team speech is different when you're the head coach, um, being responsible for the livelihoods of all of your staff. If you fail, they fail, which means their kid probably has to leave their school. You know, your assistant coaches child has to move back to Spain because because you failed like all of these things kind of weigh on you and so the reason I'm kind of going down this path is I think from a consistency perspective what I've witnessed is that the coaches that have factored in all of these things they understand how they operate at their optimum they're their amount of sleep, how they can set their staff up to make sure that they can get closer to actually coaching rather than being pulled away from coaching and having to deal with all the other things that have an identity away from their sport and uh, take jobs fully accepting that they are probably going to be difficult and they want to still opt in anyway when you consider that and you're aware of all of that and you still want to progress and go forward anyway, I think you're better equipped immediately to be able to deal with it. I think it's when coaches are either lied to or they're lying to themselves 
or they don't have the opportunity to set themselves up for success, when they're not even aware what success looks like for a coach, that's when they struggle. And that's the majority of coaches right now, I would say. That's a really interesting point. Um, the, you, you mentioned about Frank Lampard and, and that he said that from all those experiences, he still didn't feel ready when, when he had first had that opportunity. So what 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 is it that coaches need to be able to feel ready? Um, is it is it about the X's and the O's and the tactical stuff, or is it is it far bigger than that for them to be equipped? And I appreciate again that might be quite different for different people, but where where along the way is there something to say, well actually if coaches start doing X, Y, and Z, they're probably going to be in a better position to be more effective. I don't think it's the X's and O's at all. I think we spend far too much time on that in all sport, really. And you can see that just with a quick search on Amazon, right? Like all the all of the top books on coaching are essentially some variation of here's Pep Guardiola's training plans. And that gets you only so far as a head coach. And, but we spend an inordinate amount of time on that. Where I think coach development needs to go is to address the other side. So we talk about being player-centric in our training. We need to be coach-centric in our education. Who is this person? How do we help facilitate their growth as a person? And so that means everything from fear and identity and, you know, an acceptance that this is actually a, a psychological discipline is what we do. Coaching is a psychological discipline, always has been. Mental skills being a new thing is, is rubbish. It's, coaching has always been mental skills. So we need to retrain ourselves as coaches on our own mental skills. Um, and, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything you can do to actually prepare particularly assistant coaches for... Uh, the weight of the emotional toll of head coaching. I think you need to experience it. But what I would say would be we could look at the problem differently and start to think about whether head coaching is its own discipline. And so rather than you going up a pathway through assistant coaching to get to head coaching after doing your 20-year apprenticeship and then getting the, the keys to a Premier League team, what about if we started to reward people who were head coaching at any level because it is closer to head coaching at all levels? If you're head coaching a conference, I would actually be more, more likely to hire you than an assistant coach anywhere else because you've been a head coach. And so we can look at that pathway differently, which can help prepare head coaches for those really, really high-pressure jobs at the top end of whatever sport it is. Yeah, and I guess maybe the same would go to say then to other roles within that multidisciplinary team. If 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 it is an assistant coach or a, a first team coach within that environment, then that they are different. They are different in terms of the roles, responsibilities, and perhaps the the qualities of the people who are taking them on. Yeah, do you know what the some of the coolest feedback I've gotten from my book and people DM me is they. They messaged me to say, I turned down a head coaching role. It's actually not for me. That's great. 
That's perfect. Like that. That's what we want and need. We don't need people who either don't want the job or aren't prepared for it taking those roles. Because obviously, like we haven't even talked about the impact this has on players, but we need the right people in these roles. This is such a central role. You know, this is the CEO of your company. That's how much influence and, and sway this role has. And it's, I mean, it, it does now actually manage departments, you know, uh, and, and so there's a lot of similarities to CEOs. And so to put someone in the role who either doesn't want it or is unprepared is, you know, you could argue it's malpractice, quite yeah. frankly. Setting people up to fail as well in that, in that situation. And I think something you said earlier as well, which echoes some conversations I've had with other people on, on this podcast is around, well, if we want to be athlete-centered or, or player-centered, then it has to start with a coach and it has to start with, with looking after and supporting them first. Otherwise, you won't stand a chance of unlocking anybody's potential. Tom, the greatest source of competitive advantage right now is not in the gym. It's not in some piece of technology. It's in the head coach. I, my argument at the elite levels is that head coaches have been achieving what they've achieved on like half steam. There is, there is so much left in the tank if we can clear away a lot of this other stuff that they need to deal with. And, and granted, that's not simple. But if we can get to the coach, because to your point, they are so central to how coaching is done, whether it's via the assistant coaches or whether it's direct from coach to player. Um, I, I think clearing space to allow coaches to perform at their optimum, head coaches to perform at their optimum is the greatest source of competitive advantage right now. We're looking at, you know, 0.01% increase in, you know, squats in the gym and all these different things to try to get ahead. There is an example sitting right in front of us of a, in most cases, a multi-million dollar asset that no one is doing anything about that has all of the knowledge and all of the impact on all of the players. That's how simple it is. Let's set that person up for success so that everyone else down the chain can be set up as well. I think there's multiple percentage points to be had right there. Yeah, no, I can see that. And I think well, listening to you speak, it just creates a world of opportunity for the people who are in positions supporting head coaches and working around that if they really understand what type of support that, that person needs. Um, but just, just kind of touching on the book slightly and, and something you write about and the, the book is based from is the, these kind of seven hard truths um, around kind of head coaching. And I don't think we've got time to explore all of them, um, but I'll, I'll just read, read them out. And if there's any in there that you think would be really valuable um, to explore a little uh, in the conversation today, then, then just say, and I think we could, we could go down that road. So um, I read out the seven. So everyone thinks you're an idiot. Uh, the fiercest rival is yourself. You don't possess the God particle. You're not a coach. You're hard for your brain. Every word counts. And tactics don't really matter. There's some quite punchy punchy statements in there. Um, are, are there any that stand out for you? Or once, when you were writing this, you felt actually this, this, one, this one really means a lot to a lot of people? Yeah, I mean, 
<laughs> You're right. There is some, maybe some clickbaity headlines there. Um, I, I think the most interesting ones for, you know, when I've asked other coaches when they've messaged me have been, you're not hired, uh, sorry, you're hired for your brain, uh, which is really about, it's a little bit of a knock-on of what we've been talking about, but this acceptance that you are a, a knowledge worker. And so, you know, if, if you look at kind of the classic economic definition of a knowledge worker, it was using divergent and convergent thinking to expand the resources available to an organization. And I make the argument that we're actually high performance knowledge workers. And what that means is that we actually need to interrupt and retrain our brain because our decision making takes place in real time in high pressure situations and in front of the 80,000 people that we, we just talked about. And so this is different from the classic definition of a knowledge worker, because when you're a marketer or uh, an accountant, your work happens behind closed doors. There's no real time thinking really being done. Whereas what we do is we need to prepare for this two hours so that we get our timeouts right and our substitutions right and uh, make sure that we're communicating with our players uh, in a, the most effective way. And so your hide for your brain is that conversation that all coaches need to have with themselves of, well, if that's the case, how do I protect my brain for the right application? Often that is game time. So think about the North American sports. I'll just give a quick example. If you think about the North American sports, the duress that the players are put under is well known. You know, you can be in three different time zones in a week. You know, we, we know all the impacts on athletic performance, but we put the coaches through all of those same performance limitations, really. They have sleepless nights. They have jet lag. They don't eat well. They don't prepare their meals. So the, the players get their meals and nutrition prepared for them. The coaches, not so much. So their nutrition impacts their ability to think clearly. All these, they're away from home too, so they're lonely. All these different things impact their ability to think and prepare the one thing that they offer. And so they're going in from a state of depletion into every game at 7 p.m. at night. And if you think about, you know, in particular markets even, they might have to do an hour to two hours of media before the game. And when the players go for their nap, which is to prepare them for the game, the coaches go and do more preparation or more media. They don't get to nap as well. So it all kind of gets to this crescendo where game time hits and they're just in this state of depletion. Emotionally, they're, they're tired, they're decision-making, all the things that deplete through the day that we know about from science emotional agility, decision-making, they're all depleted at 7 p.m. and then we go game time. You need to perform now. And so that's what I mean in terms of 
your height for your brain means we need to reformulate how we're thinking about coaching performance to be optimal. We already know most of the secrets. We just need to apply them so that the head coach can perform at their optimum at game time. And that's the difference between noticing something, calling a timeout at the right time, making the right substitution, calling the right play. It could be that simple of a solve. I think what, what, what you said probably resonates with a lot of coaches who, who sit up late formulating game plans, looking at clips, um, picking up uh, some fast food on the way home from practice because they haven't had time to eat properly. And yet, if their athletes were doing that, the coach would probably say to them straight away, get yourself to bed, eat well, and the rest. And, and these things don't necessarily tend, tend to apply. And, and goes back to that point you made earlier about actually got to be coach-centric to be able to sort of start with this. I, I think that's a great point. And one of my colleagues at UK Coaching, one of our coach developers, equally kind of explained, well, actually, how do, how do coaches taper their workload ahead of their biggest performance moments? If, if, we're, if we're coming into a, to a big game or, or something which is going to take a lot of energy, then what do we do in the week before to make sure that we're in the best state for that? And does that, does that kind of link in with what you mentioned about retraining your brain? Is that about kind of creating kind of habits which are going to support us in performance moments? Yeah, exactly. So I think the first part is just the acceptance and awareness that that is what we do. You know, we, again, we are in a psychological discipline where our mind is what generates the kind of economic output of what it is we do. That's where we have the benefit on other human beings. And so... You know, you think about, yeah, again, awareness, communication, decision-making. That's our game. And all of those things deplete throughout the day. And so the great news is the habits that we know are optimal, we already have them in our possession because we give them to our players. We just need to be partners in that performance rather than adversaries. At the moment, we are the ones that, to your point on, you know, send the players up to their hotel rooms for curfew because they've got an important game in the morning and we slink into the bar for four pints because we can't sleep. Or we stay up until 2am cutting up film, but if they stayed up until 2am playing video games, we would be ropeable. So the great news is we're not too far from this and we have all these lessons <laughs> Our jobs are how to optimize human performance. So we know this. We just need to accept our role as partners and, and maybe even present that to the players. You know, I'm going to be in bed the same time as you guys. Or, you know, here's my nutrition plan for the week. Or you know, here's the space that I need because I need to go for an hour run because that's my time to meditate, think, get myself into the optimum uh, frame of mind for the game and if I can perform better you guys will perform better no, I, I really like that and I think there's something quite um, pertinent about the coach modeling the behaviors and the values that they want the athletes to be able to to, to use themselves uh, and I, I guess the, the there's a lot of coaches who probably are in a position where they want to give the athletes everything that they need so they can go out and perform on their competition day to the best of their ability. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but 
I kind of I'm hearing that maybe that that's a paradox in itself by by the coach working so hard and almost burning out because they're trying to provide the athlete with everything they want then there's they're not giving the athlete the best possible care because they're not looking after themselves so actually the trade-off between well I'm not going to watch those clips or I'm not going to have that conversation or make myself available at 11 at night to speak to someone well actually that's going to help performance because we're going to be in a better position physically and, and psychologically when we come to the performance run yeah and that's why I think that conversation is a great way to to broach that because then it starts to become a conversation and you're actually educating your players on this level of availability isn't actually coaching. You know, again, I'm talking about elite athletes. So, you know, you're grown men or women, you, you can look after yourselves for an hour while I go for a run. <laughs> and in that hour, I, I'm setting myself up for success. So it starts to become performance dialogue about the coach. And what you'll see is that the players will accept that. You're on their, their level. They're performers too. They understand this preparation. It's because we've just set this bar for ourselves that's I've got to always be available to answer every question. And when, you know, so-and-so loses his hotel room key, I'll go and get the new one for him. I didn't go and get his own hotel key. You go to bed. You know, and so we need to stop babying everyone, but but actually educate them and come to the players with, here's what I'm doing. I'm not just at home doing nothing. I'm going to prepare myself for battle just like you. Uh, I like that. And and look, before we move on to, to, to another one of the, the these truths, um, I'll share a bit of my experience. And I, I was on a, a development course a few weeks ago working with some other coaches and I, I, I'm in an assistant coach's role so I don't have that emotional bandwidth uh, or I don't have it yet anyway um, but we were talking about the conditions for coaches to thrive or survive and how well coaches recognize themselves what do they need to be at like their optimum performance when when they they're out there at practice or out there in a competition and I recognize within myself well actually I've eaten well slept well um, worked out at some point um, and feel prepared, then they're, they're the conditions for myself to, to go and thrive. But on the other, other side of the, the, the scale, well, actually, if I'm having a bad day, if I haven't been able to do those things, I recognize that I just need only a little bit of space or someone to vent to or, or, or maybe just an arm around the shoulder, which actually just helps me get through that part of the day. And, and having a, a day which goes well and having a day which doesn't go so well is fine because that's all part of life and all part of coaching. But having that appreciation where I can give myself the best possible chance if I try and do these things, I've come away from that as a coach thinking, well, actually, I feel a lot more equipped and self-aware. And if I'm better at that, then players will get the best out of me as well. Um, Cody, go on. So, so out of our seven, uh, your heart for your brain, we, we, we've touched on. Uh, is there anything else within those seven that, that you think would be uh, really interesting for our listeners to, to understand a bit more about? Well, let's keep going. So the, the one that most people post about or message me about is the last one, which is tactics don't really matter. And again, it kind of grabs you, but obviously tactics matter. And they matter quite a bit. But I think we've over-indexed and what's 
probably more important, I believe, is connection and belonging and cohesion, whatever, whichever way you want to term it in team sports. And so that's really what the chapter is about. It's not about tactics at all. But this, you know, insistence that preparation can only be done if it's about tactics is uh, incorrect. And in fact, I would probably, I'm not a big frameworks or models man, but if I were building out a framework or a model, it would be that belonging actually sits at the base and the tactics are on top of those. And so you can become more tactically robust if you have a connected team. So if the team understand each other, if they've spent time together, they care about each other, you know, truly understand and you truly care about them and there's buy-in, I think you can be remarkably flexible in what your tactics are and the understanding will um, maintain over time if you can do that. And so that's really what it's about is, look, do all your tactical stuff, but I think there's maybe a, a bit of a shortcut or a bridge to where you're trying to go tactically by spending some time connecting your players, connecting your group. And I mean, we, we can probably direct this conversation towards England where you, I mean, how many times did they change traditional formation in the final? Um, I think they had four at the back, five at the back and three at the back, probably at various times throughout the 120 minutes. So, you know, then you go and look at the way that these players interact amongst themselves and it starts to become really intriguing. Sure, they're all Premier League players. They're all international players at a Premier League club. They play in Champions League finals, all that kind of stuff. But the way that the tactics work is because all of those players are cohesive because mm. they haven't had a lot of training time. That, that's a great point. And, and the, I think I've heard some words associated with the England football team recently about kind of belonging, family, um, something that, that I'm really curious about is that moral purpose that goes with it and how, how the players aren't necessarily playing for themselves today. They're playing for the 11-year-old version of themselves and they, they recognise the part they're playing within society and, and inspiring people and, and they, they understand that what they're doing ripples out into a world much bigger than themselves and, and the football team. And I'm sure this, this is the question, right? This is the question that I'm sure everybody will ask. And I'm sure that I know there's no silver bullet to it. So I'm not going to ask you the question how I was going to about three minutes ago. But in terms of establishing this, this culture, so to speak, which I suppose is the word that might be used an awful lot to associate with this, this kind of belonging and this connection. Um, I'm not going to ask you, what do you do? Because that's going to be different for different people. But, but where do you start? If, where would a coach go to to start thinking about establishing this this kind of understanding and this connection between the people in their their squad or their team? Yeah, well, there's some really great examples out there of professional environments that have given us clues as to where to start. And you know, you the immediate one that I go to is the San Antonio Spurs, and it was just a meeting 
and it would happen you know every two or three weeks and and someone would get up and present about something that was important to them and so the examples that i can recall you know manu ginobili getting up and talking about conflict in argentina and coming from you know a, a war-torn country and patty mills getting up and talking about indigenous australia and you know I think someone else gave a presentation on tattoos or something like that. And so, you know, you can just, again, this is what I mean. We, we spend this inordinate amount of time on tactics and moving X's and O's around the board and moving whiteboard markers and, and an hour spent listening to Patty Mills talk about the history of, of Indigenous Australia and, and all their trials and tribulations is probably more, considerably more valuable to the overall cohesion of the group than whether someone understands where you want your right back to go. And so you don't need to start by trying to reinvent the wheel and trying to get to the end of culture and winning, you know, winning culture um, within an hour. There's little opportunities throughout the day that you're already, you're already having meetings. Why not repurpose one meeting and ask, I would say the coach should start. Coach should always go first. If you're the leader, you show the level that you want. Here's something that's important to me. And then, you know, start to layer them in throughout the season even. Give everyone an opportunity to do 30-minute presentation on something that's important to them. It can be anything. That's going to get you closer to where I think an optimum level of teamwork is than spending that 30 minutes on yeah tactics or something else it, it i hear all i hear is is like long term right this, this isn't something that that comes overnight or is imposed on a lot of people it, it sounds like this is an, an environment that just um fosters um trust and and connection and and that kind of building of relationships which doesn't come immediately uh, and and i suppose actually over the course of the season, if a head coach can be consistent with this is the way we do stuff around here, regardless of us winning well or, or, or results not going our way, then that must lead to players buying in more to, to this is our approach, this is our team, our family. Yeah, and, and that can be a theme. You know, we, we immediately go when we talk about theming, it goes to, you know, the Crusaders work and the All Blacks and all these different types of things and these big grand themes about, you know, Roman emperors and all that kind of thing. It doesn't even need to be that. You know, the theme that I used consistently through our environment at AFL Canada was last two minutes of the grand final on the MCG. And that was kind of our, does it make the boat go faster? And so everything was about, you need to, and, and we would kind of meditate on this. You need to put yourself in in a, a visual of you're playing on on the home of Aussie Rules football in front of 20, 30, 40,000 people. The crowd noise, you can't hear each other. Your lungs are about to explode. We're playing New Zealand or Papua New Guinea or South Africa or someone, and you're in the back pocket. Like, what do you do? You, you know, you can, and that's, 
this is where kind of the idea of tactics don't really matter is because anyone who's been in a championship game at any level knows that the last two minutes or the last five minutes of any championship decider, there are no tactics. There is, it is a mad scramble. You know, if scores are level, we are scrambling. Everyone's scrambling. It's little grubber kicks along the ground, you know, booting the center backs are just clearing their lines, get it out of there, you know, and so when you start to frame that, what do we need for those last two minutes to get us over the line? That can be your theme. And that starts to become, well, we need to connect with each other. Because if you don't care and connect, then you're not running hard for your teammates in the last two minutes because your lungs are hurting, their lungs are hurting, and everyone's in self-preservation mode. How do we get them out of that self-preservation and into a state of connection and belonging? I need to run myself into the ground for these two minutes so that we can achieve this together. And so that can be a, th- a consistent theme that you have through everything you do. Nice. Cody, you, 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 you've made me feel like I want to get out, get up, get out of the room I'm in and go and go and just coach someone. <laughs> you've got me really excited about coaching, talking about that. And I mean, thinking about, or coaches thinking about how they can uh, create that connection and, and help people all point in the same direction and having a theme to a season as sim- simply as you, you put it there just just feels like there's a really clear purpose and a clear drive and I suppose from that then people can start to see their role in that and how they play a part and how how the support they offer to their teammates is going to be really valuable in in those hardest moments when, when we're really up against it um look yeah. Cody um I I, I'd love to just go, go and touch on one more of these because I'm, I'm loving the conversation, if that's okay with you. Um, so we've covered uh, you hired for your brain. Tactic, tactics don't really matter. Uh, is there a third and final one for, for today that, that you think would be valuable for people for us to focus a bit of time on? Yeah, let's do a U-turn and we'll go back to the second one. Your fiercest rival is yourself. And this is really about the emotional side of coaching. And so this is the nuts and bolts of what the book is about. I set out to write the most realistic portrayal of head coaching possible. And it's been really cool because I've received a lot of messages saying something to that effect that, you know, it's not kind of written at coaches, you know, go and do this, or you should be doing this. It's very much like, here's what we all go through. And just so you know, you're not alone in feeling this, or you're not the only one struggling with the emotional side. And the reason I I think this is really important is we do a really great job of the physiological side of everything in sport. We do a horrific job on the emotional side of everything in sport and it's probably a a larger societal issue but we're at a point now where we're asking you know coaches who are from a generation where it was don't talk about your feelings don't recognize your feelings probably just either shut up or go to the pub and and have six pints uh, and never mention it to you know are now having to coach athletes who uh, are brought up in a society that's encouraging them to recognize and talk about 
their feelings and emotions. And so there's a real disconnect there. You can see it immediately. And so we as coaches need to really educate ourselves and retrain ourselves on fear, on identity, on loneliness, on, you know, how it is that we self-reflect on everything that we go through, not just the duties of a head coach. Did I get my practice right? But how can I be in an emotional state that is at the level that, that I need to help everyone else perform? Because if you don't get it right, how are you going to help others get it right? And again, I think it's a societal thing more than more than a sports thing. But yeah, we need to address it pretty pretty rapidly. Yeah, on, on one of the other coach developer podcasts uh, I, I was on, we, I was chatting to Pete Alashuga, who, who's done a lot of work uh, around kind of coach self care um, and, and looking at burnout and, and stress and how this can impact on the performance of coaches. And I was saying that there's a lot of words and a lot of language connected to coaches in high performance sport around grit and determination and resilience and I guess these really stoic words that we hold in really high value and he was saying well actually there's a place for kindness and a place for empathy and a place for for people being supported and and they're not necessarily the words we always hear around high performance sport because perhaps they've never been there Or, or perhaps coaches Need, need to be able to feel brave enough to be able to say, well, it's okay not to feel okay. It's okay to, to kind of ask for some help or some, for some support. Um, and that's not necessarily a sign of weakness. That's, that's a sign of not giving up. That's a sign of wanting to be better. That's exactly it. And it goes back to what we touched on a little bit earlier around you can still have that ruthless environment where everyone works their tail off and, you know, there's this consistent drive, but it can be approached with empathy and with care and with the right rejuvenation. You know, it's not about, I, I, I'm very clear on the fact that it's not about balance even. High-performance sport is about being imbalanced, but we can manage that imbalance a hell of a lot better. What we do currently is we live in imbalance and then just half up, half-ass our rejuvenation. You know, at the end of the season, you take two days off and then you're back into pre-season training. So if you can start to even accept the fact that I'm going to be way out of whack for nine months of the year because that's the season, that's fine. But you've got those other three months, attack that with the same gusto that you do and make sure that you're healing and rejuvenating so that you can attack the next nine months. And so I think that's where people kind of get a, a little bit mixed up in terms of their, you know, you can't be like this to be a successful high-performance coach because it means taking your foot off the gas. It doesn't mean that. It means accepting what the role is, accepting what it comes with and the hours and the, the, the strain and the stress, but still putting infrastructure in place around yourself so that you can perform and then recover adequately. 
Is is there anyone out there who who's doing this really well? Well, you, you have to look at at least from the you know the empathetic and emotional side. People like Gareth Southgate, people like Steve Kerr, are doing it better than their predecessors. And you know that's not to say that everything's perfect, but I think that they are doing a, a really great job, especially again in sports that are traditionally have grasped onto those masculine ideas of, yeah, just run through the wall. And that's the only thing we can do. You have to be physically fierce and you have to run through a brick wall and that's all we'll accept. And you've got coaches that have come to the table in the the highest, highest levels and said, we actually don't need to solve the problem this way. I'll, I'll show you. And I think that's the most important piece. I think Southgate and Kerbo say, I will do all of this work with you. Um, you know, I, I'll show you how to be an empathetic leader, how to infuse joy in everything we do. You know, all these kind of quote unquote soft terms, they actually go and do them and then it translates to their teams as well. So um, I, yeah, I, I would look to those, but we need more. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I think for anyone listening who's, who's in, in a, in a position where they can go and influence this stuff, uh, it's certainly worth thinking about on, on kind of how, how you carry yourself and the behaviours that you show as a coach to your, your athletes and the coaches in your team. Um, look, Cody, um, I could go on for the next two hours just, just digging into the, these seven, uh, but I'm really keen just to kind of look at, look at this whole kind of world of, a, of support in a slightly different way. And I know with the work that you do, you're in a position where you are coach developing and supporting head coaches. Um, and I guess what, what's, what's your role in that? Because if you're working with different coaches who have got this high level of contextual expertise in the sports and the worlds that they're working with, how, how, do you, how do you create a rapport and how do you establish a relationship where you can support them and help them, help them kind of tackle some of the challenges they're facing in their, their own world? Yeah, well, you know, I work with coaches in other invasion sports. And so I think, one, there's a, a natural kind of brotherhood, I guess, of just the, the sports kind of tactically look very similar. It's, invasion games are all the same. They're space and time games. And so there's kind of a natural affinity there. And then... The domain-specific knowledge doesn't matter because it's coaching and specifically head coaching. And what happens is when you put two head coaches in a room together is they naturally understand each other. They know the nuances that we've been talking about here. They know the the sleeplessness, the loneliness. The They know that, you know, the success of what you do can literally be a flip of a coin decision. And, you know, whilst the rest of the world is kind of judging that decision, as we've seen for the last six weeks with England, that everyone knows better than the one person who's actually contextually knows what's going on is other head coaches understand that dynamic. And so what I've experienced is I don't have any Aussie rules head coaches that I work with, but 
when we get in a room together, there's just a, a natural affinity and a, um, yeah, almost like a, a family nature to what we're doing because there's this understanding. There's no judgment and, and someone kind of, you know, I think from the coach's perspective, it, it kind of becomes someone understands me for the next hour there's going to be someone in the room that I can just talk to and they're going to go, Oh yeah, that was tough. I've been through something similar. And so that's why I think, you know, this work that I've been doing, it tends to be given to, you know, psychologists and, and other people, but I think head coaches are the best people to mentor other head coaches for that reason. No, I can, I can see that. And I think there was something you, you said in there around kind of not making a judgment being kind of, crucial and, and I think that if there are any coach developer or anyone who's out there who creates that learning environment for a coach if, if we're quick to judge or stepping in trying to uh, fix problems quite quickly as a coach developer um, that that is likely to perhaps break down in, in kind of that that trust or, or maybe some of that safety that people feel um, how do you how do you kind of go about that? And it, is it something that just comes quite naturally with the way that you go and support people? But is it a conscious thing for you to be able to almost park your values and beliefs so you're able to help someone else make sense of what they're thinking and feeling? Yeah, definitely. And that's where I think that immediate connection comes from amongst head coaches is you know that the person you're talking to has been through similar dilemmas, challenges. And so that kind of breeds that trust. And then, I mean, you know, even the language that we use or that I use, you know, I get called a coach educator. I'm not a coach educator. I'm a coach. I coach my coaches in exactly the same way that I coach my players. We have conversations about how they want to be coached. We have conversations that are just me listening. We have conversations where I'm a sounding board and I give advice on setting up culture or dealing with a problem or communication or analyze speeches that they've given. And then we have conversations where I tear shreds off them and say, like, this is on you. Like, you know, you, you're complaining and, you know, this isn't, this isn't you. It's not your values. It's not what you're trying to create. So, I'm just a coach that's coaching. Um, I'm not sticking to any framework. We we really just go through what they're dealing with and try to remove those impediments to their performance. And how you do that is a sliding scale, just like it is with athletes. Sometimes they need a bit of a kick in the butt. Sometimes they just need an arm around them. This might sound like a really straightforward question i'm sure it's not necessarily a straightforward answer uh, and i guess using that kind of comparison between a coach and perhaps they've got this toolbox of different strategies that they might use to be able to get the best out of the athletes in their care and he just listed a few really great examples of being a sounding board sharing some stuff just listening all, all these different approaches you've got what what's an indicator for you as a coach developer to say well the person i'm working with needs a bit more of this today is it, is it simply just asking them kind of what, what they want from you or, or are you, what, what cues are you looking at? Yeah. It, I mean, there is a feel to it, like coaching. 
athletes. I mean, it, you get a feel for players and you see how they respond and you test certain things as you kind of going through asking questions. But yeah, that's where I think, again, the, the, you know, calluses of having coached for a long time and the knowledge that comes of people and their behavior, I think is, is really useful in this environment. And obviously there are conversations about how do you want to be coached? That's the first conversation I have with everyone. What do you want me to do? I can be a sounding board. I can be a critical friend as, as Eddie Jones and Neil Craig put it. Um, or I can be all these different things, but ultimately it's, it's that feel and you build that trust over time and it starts to get to a point where you spend enough time together in the environment to be able to say, look, I haven't done this before, but we need to have a serious conversation. You know, I, I need to pull you back in line. Otherwise I'm, I'm not doing my job. And so that trust comes over time, obviously, but yeah, I, I do sense that, head coaches with other head coaches that feel might be a little bit uh, accelerated. Cody, I think you just hit on the quote of which I, I wrote down as you were saying, because it just said that the calluses of, of having coached for a long time is really useful in this environment. What, what a brilliant turn of phrase that is. I love that. Um, <laughs> and, and just for, from you and your perspective, I'm sure a lot of our audience would be really interested in this in terms of your development and getting the support that you need. Where, where do you go for kind of learning more, getting help, accessing the kind of support that you want to make available for the people you're working with? Yeah, I'm really lucky in that having spent the last five years, you know, writing books and having my own podcast and, and meeting people in high performance all around the world is I go to those people. Uh, this is the thing with, with me is that, I'm, I come and do the work with other head coaches, but behind me is Patty Steinfurt, who's, you know, been at the Boston Red Sox as a mental skills coach, who's just taken over high performance job at, at Football Australia and Darren Burgess and Meg Popovic from the Toronto Maple Leafs and all these different people kind of sit behind me as my mentors and coaches and, you know, offer up you know, their learnings as well. And, and so it kind of comes with a whole heap of people behind me that, you know, we can all learn from. So, yeah, that's, that's really encouraging as well because, you know, you, you do run into things from time to time that I haven't been through. You know, I haven't sat in press conferences, you know, with the British media grilling me. So but I can go and find someone who's been through that and, and get some expertise there as well. So it's nice to f have the feeling that you have an army of people behind you so that, you know, you don't need to have all the answers offhand, you know, at the flick of a finger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the thing that I find liberating and probably found quite scary as a coach developer along the journey I've been on is understanding that, that saying, I don't know, but I know someone who might is quite a, quite a liberating feeling not feeling like you have to know the answer to every problem, but just being able to point people in the right direction or help them make a connection can just be as useful, if not a lot more useful. Um, Cody, look, I feel like we could chat forever um, and, and we could go down so many different avenues. Uh, just, just a few 
quick fire questions on, on these. I don't feel like you have to give a long answer to, to the last couple of questions I'm going to ask you. Um, so look, um, I'm, we're in a hotel. Um, I'm just getting into the elevator and I've just come in, stood next to you. We've got, we've got 30 seconds um, before we get to the floor that we're stepping out on. And I've realized, oh my God, it's Cody Royal. He's written some great books and I just, I just need to get something from it to help me. Um, so Cody, what can I do to be the best head coach out there? <laughs> Figure out who you are. So the best, the best question I've maybe ever, the best intro question in an elevator that I've heard from my friend, Nancy Spotten. And she asks, what makes your heart sing? Nice. So start there. Right, writing that down and stealing that for myself. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it, has to be, it can only be used in elevators, though, nowhere else. It's, a, okay. it's an elevator question. Yeah. Exclusive to that. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so, um, in terms of your book and, and all the thought and, and expertise that has gone in there, when, when, you've, when you've written it, when you've spoken to people, when you've researched it, has there, any, has there anything you found really surprised you in, in terms of? stories you've heard or people you've met or, or things you've read that think, ah, do you know what, that, that's, that's new to me or, or, or caught you off guard slightly? I'd say we almost touched on it there briefly at the end. It's not so much a thing, but it's a just how much every single head coach says, I thought I was crazy for struggling with that. And what that means is, you know, even if someone listening is, you know, at, a, at an amateur level or an Olympic sport and they're not in team sports, it's remarkable how regularly all coaches at all levels say, yeah, of course I've struggled with that. I thought I was crazy for struggling with that, but it sounds like everyone else is. That, that was the big for me. <laughs> the mind-blowing thing, how the people that you see on television every day in press conferences are struggling with the same things that you're struggling with in terms of their coaching. And I think that's probably quite reassuring as well for, for a lot of people. Definitely. There's a sense of community in that. Mm, yeah, hugely. And then, look, fi final one. Uh, you, you mentioned a couple of names in the call, Steve Kerr, Gareth Southgate, in terms of people who are do, doing some of this stuff, this stuff well. So if people... Want to go off and, and find out more and, and explore this a little further uh is there any way you would signpost our listeners to 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 kind of see some great examples or, or go and watch or listen or, or read some more kind of on this this topic yeah uh well some books that i've been recommending and some people that i recommend in general uh pippa grange is obviously a you know the kind of leader in fear and addressing fear, particularly in sporting environments. Not only is she just awesome, but I love that she, her background kind of came through the AFL. Uh, and so Fear Less is her new book. Now, Owen Eastwood, who is a friend of mine, despite the fact he's a Kiwi, he's done great work on belonging, uh, and his book is absolutely fantastic. And so there's a couple of books, and then... Yeah, I would spend time actually going and listening to the Steve Kerrs and the Gareth Southgates. Like go and 
go on YouTube and, and find either them delivering sessions or, or even just talking in press conferences and listen to the, the words that they use and the words that they repeat specifically, you know, in different press conferences, in, in different environments, and just see how consistent they layer these, these different things into their coaching because they're not one-offs. You'll hear the same words come up over and over and over again, and they're talking to their players. They're talking to their teams when they're in those environments, you know, even press conferences. They're directing those messages to the team. So when you, when you can start to kind of see how regularly they layer these factors in, it starts to, to really make sense why they've seen the success and built the teams they have. Nice. Nice. Cool. Um, well, look, Cody, uh, thank you so much for giving up the last hour or so. Um, the time has just evaporated. Um, it's been brilliant to talk to you and just kind of get a, a snapshot of, of the world that you, you work in and, and the work that you do. So, yeah, huge thank you. And I'm sure that our, our listenership of, of coaches and, and people working in coach development I've taken away loads of things from this conversation that they might want to reflect on and go and apply in their practice. So, Cody, thank you again. Thanks for having me on. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.